Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. There was a faint knock at the door of the home in Agua Prieta, Mexico. When the couple inside went to answer the door, they looked out to see a woman lying on the ground. She proceeded to tell them that she'd just escaped from people who held her captive in a hut. A harrowing tale then transformed into doubt in the minds of the media. This wasn't just any woman. She was once called the sensuous sermonizer by Cole Porter. Thousands flocked to hear her speak every week. Was she sent from God or was she just a woman with secrets? This week, I'll talk about the strange disappearance of Amy Semple McPherson. I got inspiration for this week's episode from watching the new Perry Mason series. It's very dark and a far cry from the original. Every week, I anxiously await the newest episode. When I saw Tatiana Maslany's character, Sister Alice, appear on the screen, I was mesmerized by her character. She has gorgeous silk gown on and Jean Harlow hair. And as I watched, I knew that this character had to be based on Amy Semple McPherson. Being raised as a Baptist and forced to go to church, you get familiar with well-known names like Billy Graham and people like that. After doing a quick Google search, I came upon stories of McPherson's disappearance. 
Now that was something I had never heard before. Then again, it took a while for the preacher at our church to let it be known that he was sleeping with the deacon's wife. These leaders in a church are held to a higher level. We have expectations of them. In our eyes, they have a closer connection to the divine. And I'm sure that's what Amy Semple McPherson's followers thought. But these are still just humans we're talking about. They have flaws and secrets. I grew very tired of being forced to go to church when I was a kid. And although I didn't quite understand what was happening when the preacher at our church confessed his affair to the congregation, I knew right then and there that I was done with mere humans telling me about salvation and damnation. Religion's still a touchy subject, but a fascination with me. I wanted to know whether McPherson was kidnapped or whether the rumors of something more salacious was true. Amy Elizabeth Kennedy was born to James Morgan and Mildred Una on October 9, 1890 in Salford, Ontario, Canada. Mildred, born Mildred or Minnie Pierce, was orphaned at an early age. Her foster parents were very involved with the Salvation Army. She met James Morgan Kennedy through a newspaper ad looking for a nurse to tend to his terminally ill wife. When Elizabeth Kennedy died a few months later, to the shock of many, James and Mildred married. James was in his 50s. Mildred was 14. Not long after their elopement, Amy was born. Mildred inundated her family's life with religion, especially her daughters. Little Amy watched her mother toil in the Salvation Army kitchens while she played pretend sermons with her dolls. And like most young people, there was confliction with religion as she grew older. Being taught the theory of evolution threw her into a tailspin, questioning lots of things like science and religion. It inspired her to write to a newspaper, wanting to know about taxpayer funding of the teaching of evolution. The response was huge, getting nationwide response. When she was 17, Amy met Robert James Semple, a Pentecostal missionary from Ireland. A noticeably short courtship led to the couple getting married in August of 1908 at a Salvation Army ceremony. Truly under the spell of Robert, Amy converted to Pentecostalism. Now, if you're not familiar with Pentecostalism, it's one of the more intense religions. There's speaking in tongues, which is the Holy Spirit speaking through you. And to the outsider, it looks crazy. The language spoken sometimes isn't even words. There's also the belief in faith healing or the laying of hands where you can heal someone just by touching them. The couple left Salford to begin a ministry in Hong Kong. But not long after arriving, both contracted malaria. And Robert Semple died, leaving his widow to give birth to their daughter, Roberta, alone. Mildred wired her daughter money to get back to New York, where she was working with the Salvation Army. Mildred commuted between New York and Ontario, while Amy stayed in New York working with the Salvation Army, too. And it was there she met accountant Harold Stewart McPherson. The two married in 1912, and a year later, they welcomed son Rolf to the world. For reasons not explained anywhere, Amy suffered a, quote, nervous breakdown. 
In the blog I read on publiciblogspot.com, Amy was diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder and then uterine cancer or appendicitis, according to some other articles, which left her unable to have any more children. As someone who has obsessive compulsion, I can tell you that it's something that you're born with. Her nervous breakdown could be attributed to stress in her mental state. This is a woman who has already been through a lot at a young age. Think about it. Serious illness, the death of a husband, birth, another marriage. She could have been suffering from postpartum depression on top of everything else. It was after a failed operation that Amy said she heard a voice asking her to preach. And when she agreed, she could turn over in bed without pain. Amy's illness prompted Mildred, or Amaz, she became known, to permanently move to New York to be with her daughter. Since divorce was frowned upon by her religion, Amy left her husband in 1915, left the babies with Ma, and joined the revival circuit. Harold McPherson eventually filed for divorce, citing abandonment in 1921. Around this time, the tent revival circuit was the huge thing. Big circus tents would be pitched across the country in the hopes of recruiting new members and converting non-believers. Amy began preaching to huge crowds. Audiences hung on her every word. These crowds began following her to each destination, often causing her to find larger locations to accommodate these huge crowds. It was a religious fervor. The crowds would shout and writhe on the ground, speaking in tongues, seeing Sister Amy, Ma, and the two kids spent their time traveling across the United States in their car they called the Gospel Mobile. The side reading, Jesus is coming soon, get ready. In fact, they are rumored to have been the first women to cross the United States in a vehicle. Ma essentially became her daughter's business manager. And after their great success with tent revivals, the women found themselves in Los Angeles. Their dream was to start their own church. I say dream literally since Sister Amy claimed she had a vision from God to start the church. After finding a lot in Echo Park, she declared, This is the place God would have us build. Mildred bought land in Echo Park where they constructed the Angelus Temple. Think about it. California has always been home to various religions promising divinity and enlightenment. This would even be the future home of the religious commune that my parents joined. The temple could seat 5,300 people, becoming the first megachurch built in the United States with its 125-foot dome. A panorama of clouds by artist Anne Hankey adorned the ceiling, while these big stained-glass windows designed by George Haskins showed the life of Jesus. The church was quickly filled with services that were three times a day, seven days a week. It was home to what Sister Amy called the four-square gospel, representing Jesus as Savior, baptizer with the Holy Spirit, healer, and soon-coming king. The whole idea comes from the Bible, where Ezekiel had this vision of God with four faces, a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. So reportedly, Amy had a vision during a revival in Oakland, California, where she saw the same vision that Ezekiel saw. And according to the church's website, quote, In the face of man, she saw Jesus, our Savior. In the face of the lion, she saw Jesus, the mighty baptizer with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
In the face of the ox, she saw Jesus, the great burden bearer, who took our infirmities and carried our sicknesses. In the face of the eagle, she saw Jesus, the coming king, who will return in power and victory for the church. It was a perfect, complete gospel. It was a gospel that faces squarely in every direction. The sermons were very theatrical, involving these big set pieces and costumes. For example, one sermon was called Arrested for Speeding. Sister Amy, dressed as a cop on a motorcycle, drove up a ramp to the pulpit where she slammed on the brakes and yelled, Stop, you're speeding to hell. Another had her dressed as a football player and was called Carrying the Ball for Christ. My favorite has to be reading about the one where she tells the story of Daniel and the lion while using a real lion on stage. A full orchestra and gospel singers were always used. Amy was actually friends with Charlie Chaplin, who advised her on some of her set pieces, so so I think you get an idea about the huge theatrics. The church offered a 24-hour prayer tower where volunteers took phone calls. So being a bit savvy, Ma divided the enterprise 50-50 between her and her daughter. In 1924, the temple opened. In addition, Amy wanted her own radio station. So she raised $25,000 from followers to set up KFSG, Call Foursquare Gospel, with engineer Kenneth Ormiston. Now, in today's dollars, that would be around $1.5 million. Kenneth would play a pivotal role in Amy's life. Kenneth Ormiston was hired to build and run the station with a salary of $3,000 a year. Every morning, Amy did the Sunshine Hour, which was her daily broadcast. Hour upon hour was spent at the station with Amy convinced that radio was the future of the church. This was when radio was in its early days. The evangelist heavily relied upon the expertise of her radio engineer, Kenneth, and that was something that didn't sit well with Mildred. See, Kenneth was married with children. It didn't seem appropriate for the two to be spending so much time together. He wasn't even religious, another fact that irked her. Eventually, the pressure from Ma caused Kenneth Ormiston to resign from his job. But this won't be the last we'll hear of Kenneth Ormiston in this story. Everything that Amy Semple McPherson touched turned to gold. Her radio station was one of the most popular in the country. Her services were so well attended that loudspeakers were fitted to the outside of the temple just for the overflow of congregants. She published weekly and monthly magazines. Over 30,000 people showed up to see her at an event in San Diego where she supposedly healed a paralyzed woman just by laying hands on her. She was a bona fide celebrity and a household name. And, just like celebrities, she had to find a getaway. McPherson purchased a home about 90 minutes from Los Angeles near Lake Elsinore. The building looks like a castle with some Middle Eastern influences from her travels there. The home even had an underground tunnel that led from the house to the garage in case she needed to escape reporters. So pretty soon, she would need the inclusiveness of her home because she would become the talk of the town. On May 18, 1926, Amy, accompanied by her assistant and personal secretary, Emma Schaefer, went to Venice Beach to work on a sermon 
do some swimming, and relax a bit. Apparently, the assistant needed to make a phone call, and she left. Other accounts I read said she was immersed in reading her Bible. But when she looked up, Amy was nowhere to be found. Because she was last seen swimming in the water, her assistant feared the worst. And pretty soon, her followers swarmed to the beach to search for her. According to an article by Naomi Grimley on BBC.com, one man even drowned while swimming out to see what he thought was her body. It actually turned out to be two dead seals. Speculation ran rampant, with a local newspaper saying there had been a sea monster seen in the area that swallowed her up. And according to one article, her followers thought she would be resurrected. More sensible was that she'd been caught up in the undertow while swimming. That night, Ma preached in her absence, concluding the sermon with, Sister is with Jesus. She really thought her daughter was gone and she even had plans to bury her outside the church under her favorite stained-glass window. McPherson was in the area to oppose a ballot measure that would allow dancing and gambling on Sundays. I got a wealth of information from a paper on firescholars.seu.edu by Margaret English de Alamina. Because of Amy's support, the ballot failed and many thought that she had dipped her toes into the wrong waters by pissing off those who ran the speakeasies and dance halls, the mob. A lot of liquor was smuggled into Venice via the piers. This was during the heyday of Prohibition. Underground tunnels led to speakeasies in the basements of the Venice Strip. Some feared that McPherson had made a personal enemy out of local mob boss Tony Cornero. Every effort was made to aid in search from airplanes to dragging the ocean floor twice. District Attorney Asa Keys announced that Amy had apparently been kidnapped with a demand for $25,000. Now that would be around $350,000 in today's money. It's really odd, but during this time in history, kidnappings were very numerous. Right now, I'm reading a book called The Kidnap Years, all about that. Most of us only know about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, but everyday people were being kidnapped left and right, so it's not unusual for this to have been a theory. There were many supposed sightings of Amy all over the country. Right before attending a ceremony with Amy with over 14,000 people lined up around the block, Ma reportedly was shown another ransom note. This one asked for $500,000, and threatened to sell Amy into, quote, white slavery if the amount wasn't paid, and it was signed by the Avengers. However, she paid this no mind and went on with the service. It was five weeks later when Amy mysteriously showed up on that doorstep in Mexico. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Spinning a wild tale. According to her, she was swimming when she saw a man calling to her from the beach. He said he needed her to come pray for his child who was dying. Now, this was something that she did frequently. She would go to people who said that they were sick or dying. He urged her to come to his car where the child lay. But when she got to the car, she said a woman appeared holding a bundle, which she thought was the child. The bundle turned out to be rags with chloroform that covered her mouth. And the next thing she knew, she was in the car. And that's the last thing she remembered. When she awoke, she found herself in an apartment. She was drugged and tied with cords to a metal bed frame. For three weeks, she was kept in the Los Angeles area before they moved her to a shack in Mexico near Douglas, Arizona. When her captors, a man named Steve and a woman named Rose, left her alone, she allegedly cut the cords that were binding her on a sharp metal can. From there, she crawled out a window. She walked through the desert until she saw the Mexican town and found herself on the couple's doorstep. One newspaper from June 23rd described her as, quote, beraggled and covered in mud, hair shorn and in a semi-conscious state upon being rescued. Mildred was able to confirm her daughter's identity via the phone by a scar on her finger. Immediately, doubts rose as to whether the kidnapping was legitimate or possibly faked. Some claimed that she was hiding, getting an abortion, until McPherson provided records of a hysterectomy. Her supporters insisted the kidnapping occurred. Over 50,000 people showed up at the train station just to welcome her home. In fact, there had apparently been a plan to kidnap Amy, along with some very notable people in Hollywood. The writer of the paper I read cited the case of Virginia Lee Cookson, who disappeared from her ranch only to return with a tale very similar to Amy's. Cookson lived on her ranch with her sixth husband, who worked in Los Angeles. And she was apparently in a dispute with a ranch company, who later lost against her in a lawsuit. She disappeared after telling her family that she was being followed. Oddly, she reappeared in Mexico, just like Amy Semple McPherson did. Her story was that she was held in an opium den and sold into, quote, white slavery. Federal agents were able to confirm that there was a man named Felipe who ran a white slavery traffic ring. And this was out of Mexico City, so it 
lend some credibility to both women's stories. And quite honestly, this sounds like something that could happen today. I mean, how many stories have you heard about women disappearing, possibly being sex trafficked? And kidnappings are still bad in Mexico. I remember hearing Guillermo del Toro tell the story of his father being kidnapped and held for ransom in Mexico City. However, more people believed that Amy had simply run off with her old radio producer, Kenneth Ormiston. So when she was missing, Ormiston himself had gone missing. He showed up at the temple around May 27th, agreeing to completely cooperate with police who'd been looking to question him. Newspapers reported seeing a woman matching Amy's description with Ormiston at a cottage in Carmel, California. And this mystery couple were also seen at various hotels shortly before the kidnapping. There was a receipt allegedly found that was signed by McPherson in the trash at the cottage. It was enough for District Attorney Asa Keys to launch an official investigation into Amy's disappearance and alleged kidnapping. On August 3rd, a grand jury gathered to hear charges against her, Ormiston, Mildred, and a woman named Lorraine Weissman. McPherson denied any wrongdoing or lying, saying, quote, That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Kenneth Ormiston denied being with Amy during her disappearance. He did admit to having an affair, but he says it was with another woman who he wouldn't name. Amy and her mother were then set to stand trial for three counts of conspiracy, which could potentially mean up to 42 years in prison if convicted. The trial was a media sensation. The whole thing ended suddenly when one of the witnesses changed her story. In January 1927, Keyes asked the court to drop the charges against the women, and the following year, the case was dismissed. What is interesting to note was some of the evidence against her and how it could reasonably be explained in support of her story. Supposedly, there were no signs of her having walked through the desert. She wasn't drenched in sweat. Her clothing and shoes weren't dusty, as you would expect. And when she knocked on the couple's door for help, they offered her water, but she allegedly asked for lemonade instead. Now, facts that seem to support the theory that this was all a hoax. But as Margaret English de Alamina points out, if she'd been held in the desert, her body would have become acclimated to the hot weather and the lack of water. Hiking experts say that perspiration evaporates quickly in the desert, and if you're in good shape, you'll perspire even less. As pointed out, Amy was in exceptionally good shape. This was a woman used to pitching those huge tents for revivals, and she worked seven days a week, performing sermons several times a day. This was no wilting flower. It's very plausible that she did trek through the desert to safety from being held in a hut. And much of the evidence against Amy was from reporters, who then gave it to police. And according to Wikipedia, the investigation was funded by Los Angeles-area newspapers. So you really have to wonder how strong this evidence was. They seemed to dismiss the accounts of her discovery, where she had torn clothing, shorn hair, bruises, and cigarette burns on her body. Regardless of being vindicated by the courts, this scandal followed her for the rest of her life. The press, which once loved her, now turned against her. 
However, Amy kept on with her ministries. In 1927, she set out on her vindication tour. Perhaps on the advice of her friend Charlie Chaplin, McPherson changed up her look to a more Hollywood style with stylish clothing, makeup, and Hollywood hair. On this tour, she would even go to clubs and speakeasies, something that she was totally against before. Her approach began to change. It was no longer so inclusive. This did not sit well with Mildred at all. She tried to bring a staff member confidence vote against her daughter. This was the beginning of the end for the mother and daughter. Mildred was replaced and eventually resigned. It's really sad to think of these two women who once rode across the country together in a car, and now they weren't even on speaking terms. It was all too much for Amy, who suffered another nervous breakdown, causing her to not preach for 10 months. When she did return to preaching, she held revivals in Boston to a record 40,000 people in the 22,000-seat arena. From there, she went to 21 different states. In 1935, she went on a six-month world tour to study the women's movement and connection with India's struggle for independence. During her tour, she even met Gandhi. The tour seemed to broaden her ideas on traditional Pentecostalism. Despite the previous successful revivals, the church faced financial difficulties, causing Amy to cut the staff. Another dispute arose between Amy and evangelist Reba Crawford's Bivalvo. Apparently, Reba was trying to gain control of the temple from Amy. The whole thing turned into a hot mess involving lawsuits and very harsh words. In the whole mix, Amy's daughter, Roberta Star Simple, turned against her mother and the two became estranged. After the whole mess, Amy found a new administrator, Giles Knight, who got the temple out of debt, but at a price. He kept McPherson sequestered, allowing only a few visitors, and he kept her on a very tight leash. This was perhaps due to the bad press she had recently suffered in the courts with the lawsuits involving Roberta and Reba. During this time, she revised her sermon style with the advice of her friend Chaplin, and she began trying more interracial services, even converting former boxing champion Jack Johnson. When World War II began, McPherson thought that it was the end of the world and the coming of Christ would be soon. She became very involved in the war efforts, using the church to donate supplies, blood, and anything that was needed. And she was not on board with pacifism, saying, It's the Bible against Mein Kampf. It's the cross against the swastika. It's God against the Antichrist of Japan. It's no time for pacifism. On September 26, 1944, Amy traveled to Oakland, California, in preparation to start a series of revivals. Her son, Rolf, went to her hotel room the next morning and found her unconscious. By her bedside table were many empty pill containers. Apparently, earlier that morning, she'd called a doctor saying she felt ill from the medicine she was taking. He was in surgery, so he couldn't answer her. She called another doctor who referred her to a different doctor. Before this third doctor could be contacted, she'd lost consciousness and she died around 11 a.m. Her cause of death was inconclusive. She'd been taking various pills such as Secanol to combat sleeplessness. 
but they weren't prescribed to her. It was ultimately thought that her death was an accidental overdose which led to kidney failure. Of course, many speculated that it was suicide, but the cause of death was listed as unknown. She was buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park. 40,000 people waited in line at her funeral. Her son, Rolf, took over the church and stayed with it for 44 years. In fact, the church is still going, claiming a worldwide membership of 7.9 million. That was the strange disappearance of Amy Simple McPherson. I found her to be a remarkably interesting character, and I have to say I can't decide whether the disappearance was a hoax or not. So tell me what you think. Join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. I want to welcome new members, Heather and Shauna. Please join us on the discussion group. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email me at redrumblonde at gmail.com. Don't forget the E on the end of blonde. And in very exciting news, if you like, you can now donate to the podcast via two methods. I have an official Patreon page after many people asking, or you can make a one-time payment on Acast using their new supporter feature. As I say on both pages, uh, podcasting is my passion, but everything is 100% out of my own pocket. I think there's a misconception that podcasters get paid loads of money, and we don't. In fact, the only money I get is from ad revenue, which isn't very much. Now, I'm sure it's different with bigger podcasters, but us little podcasts do it all on our own. So any help is always appreciated. And I'm not sure about what perks are preferred, so let me know what y'all would like. I do think it's really cool that ACAST started a supporter feature. You can find it on any of the episodes in the description. You know, it's just the little things that help a lot. Thanks a lot for listening, guys, and catch you next week.